Welcome everyone to your favorite real estate podcast, Selling Greenville, right here in lovely Greenville, South Carolina. I am your host, as always, Stan McCune, realtor here in the upstate. And just a reminder, as always, you can find all my contact information in the show notes. If you need to reach out to me for any reason, please do. I think uh, we're going to have a great fall, just based on what I'm seeing. It seems like things are really going to start to pick up in the fall, so I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in buying or selling, please let me know. And as always as well, if you like this podcast, please go ahead and give us a rating. Make sure you're subscribed to it so you don't miss any future episodes. We've got a lot of different things planned, um, and I'm really excited for that. And I want to make sure it gets out to everyone. And some of you are on my email list. If you're not, please let me know. I want to make sure that we get this podcast out to everyone. All right, today we are going to be talking about repairs. And this has been something that's been on my mind for a while. Different people respond differently when they get uh, repairs, uh, like a list of repairs. If you're a seller or if you're a buyer, you're getting inspections done and you get that inspection report that makes it sound like the house is absolutely falling apart. Different people respond differently once they get uh, that inspection report or once they have that contractor tell them what he sees. There's a lot of different uh, variables to consider. And I'm not an inspector. I'm not a contractor, so I have to hedge what I say here. But I'm going to talk in some general terms about what, generally speaking, I do freak out about when I see something that appears on an inspection report, and what repairs or what uh, items needed to be repaired that I do not freak out about, generally speaking, when I see them. Now, this, again, is general. Every case is unique. You have to take all factors into account. Different houses are built in different ways. For instance, we're going to talk about some crawl space related things as part of this podcast. Well, what makes a major, major difference is whether we're talking about a walkout crawl space or a crawl space that is, you know, basically 18 inches high that you can barely maneuver around in. That makes a big difference when you're talking about crawl space repairs. I'm not addressing any of that. I'm speaking in more general terms and more uh, general ideas with regard to what I'm talking about in this podcast. So if you have a specific issue a specific question that seems like it kind of relates to some of this, then you need to talk to your realtor or your inspector about that and make sure that you're on the same page, that you don't agree to something or decide to do something that could end up costing you thousands of dollars down the road. We want to make sure that that uh, isn't the case. That said, there are some things in general that when I hear okay, this needs to be repaired, this needs to be replaced, I don't immediately freak out. And some of these things, the typical person, when they hear it, it sounds really scary. And it honestly, there was a time when it sounded scary to me as well, but I've just gotten used to these things and I've seen how some things are easier to be fixed than you would guess. And the first thing that I'm going to discuss is foundation Actually, a lot of this stuff is related to foundation, but foundation supports that are needed in one way or another. Let's say that you walk into a house, usually an older house, and you immediately notice that there's some sagging floors. 
Well, first off, let me say it makes a big difference if the floors are sagging throughout the house versus if there's just a little section where the floors are sagging. That could be a lot of different things that could be causing that. That could be a broken floor joist. That could be a sagging girder. There's a ton of different things. That could be a a pier that's starting to crumble. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that could be causing that. In general, if I run into a situation, and I'm, and I'm not just speaking about my clients, I'm speaking about, as most of you, if not all of you that listen to this know, um, I have flipped houses. I still do that every now and then, kind of when the right deal that doesn't take up a ton of my time comes up. Um, I have rental properties. I've had to deal with a lot of different repairs over the years. If we have a foundation that needs to be supported in some way, but it's it's a very specific thing. There's a very specific area that needs to be supported. Let's say that there is a crumbling pier. That is a very simple repair in most cases, in most cases. Let's say that there are a few floor joists that need to be replaced. Um, in certain situations, in a lot of situations, that's a very simple repair. Even if you have a small girder, which kind of holds up the floor joists, um, even if you have a small girder that needs to be uh, repaired or replaced or supported in some ways, usually those are not very expensive. When I say not very expensive, I mean, um, you know, it might cost you a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred or whatever the case may be, but it's not going to be. Some people, when they hear foundation repairs, they're thinking they're mind twenty twenty five thousand dollars. I have never seen a uh, foundation a house foundation that needed that much uh, repair work done. Um, now, of course, there have been some. I just <laughs> I just haven't seen any. Obviously, that would need to be a very big house to begin with, a very big foundation. Uh, but oftentimes, foundation problems can be fixed uh, without you having to spend five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars, whatever the case may be. Don't immediately let your mind go there if it's a very specific thing in the crawl space in the foundation that needs to be repaired. Now, what do I freak out about when I start seeing substantial, widespread? repairs that are needed in in the foundation in the crawl space or whatever the case may be with the foundation or if we're talking about a slab foundation um, slab foundations uh, can be tricky uh, you know if something goes wrong with them that can start to be a little bit trickier that's the, one of the advantages of a crawl space foundation is if something goes wrong even though crawl spaces tend to be a little more finicky than a slab foundation, but if you have a uh, poorly built slab foundation and things start to go wrong with that, that can be a real pain to fix. Now, if you have a crawl space or a basement type of foundation and it needs substantial repair works, we're talking about, you know, there's a massive, you know, 70 foot girder and the whole thing needs to be replaced. All right, so now we're talking about things that now I'm starting to freak out about. We've got something that could end up being a lot more expensive depending on um, on, on the layout of that foundation. Um, you've got, you know, a hundred floor joists that need to be replaced or repaired or whatever the case may be. That is, at that point now, we're starting to talk about something that is 
more of a concern to me. Because now it's not just an isolated thing, it's something that impacts a lot of stuff. You know, if you're replacing a massive girder, you, you have to account for the floor joists that are sitting on that girder and whatnot. And you've got flooring on top of that. You've got a lot of things that need to be, uh, that are interconnected now that need to be accounted for. And so that's going, oops, sorry about that. That's going to drive up the price. I, I got a little excited there with my hand gestures and my, my ring hit my, uh, hit my desk. So I'm sorry about that, uh, that loud noise there. You've got a lot of different things that need to be addressed. At that point, now you're talking about the price going up. That's where I start to freak out. Again, every case is different. You have to look at everything uh, uniquely, not one size fits all approach to this, but in general terms, that's how I feel. Uh, termite damage, all right? Most people, when they hear that there are active termites, they start to really freak out, really not be interested in that house at all. Termite damage is, at least down here in Greenville, really, really common. I mean, listen, I went out earlier this year into the woods with my kids. I saw a, uh, you know, a piece of wood that was on the ground that had all kinds of uh, what looked like termite tubes in it. I opened up the wood. It was just full of termites. I mean, this is right behind my house, okay? Um, this is a very common thing in the South. You can't uh, eliminate all of the termites in this area. They serve a function in the ecosystem, all right? So termites in and of themselves aren't bad, but you don't want them in your house. Let's say that you've got termite damage in the crawl space. You get an inspection done and they say, well, you know what? We have some active termites here in this corner over here, and this needs to be addressed. Um, if I hear that type of lingo, typically, I'm not too worried about that. Active termites in a corner of the crawl space probably is going to be a simple fix. You need to get a contractor out there uh, to look at that. You can have a more detailed uh, discussion with your inspector about that, what he thinks about that. But I'm typically not freaking out about something like that. What I'm freaking out about is when there is uh, major, and again, similar to the last uh, thing that we discussed, but major widespread damage, particularly if there's a possibility that it may actually be in the wall. So what can happen is you've got termites that um, are in the crawl space. That's typically where they start or in the basement. They start down there, and if they kind of run out of things to eat once they have had their their heyday with the crawl space, then they will start going up the walls and eating, you know, your studs in the walls. And that is a real big problem, right? Because if they if they've only done that one little place, okay, that's that's not the end of the world. But if they've done that throughout the house, you're talking about major, major repairs. So termite damage in and of itself, I'm not inherently uh, concerned about, but if it's widespread termite damage, we're talking about termites throughout the crawl space, they are active, there are, uh, you know, termite tubes or tunnels or whatever you want to call them throughout the crawl space, there are, is wood that if you tap it with a hammer, it just kind of crumbles. All right, now we're talking about major issues. Uh, we're talking about substantial repairs that might need to be done and if you have any evidence that they are in the walls, that's a big deal. There are some inspectors out there that um, have technology that they can actually stick a scope 
with a camera on the end of it into the walls. Now, that's really helpful. The only thing to consider there is they need a, a way, a, a, an entry point to go into the walls. And some sellers might not want you to do that. That would be considered a destructive test. You would need to get permission to do something like that from the sellers if you're the buyer. Um, but there is, there are those options out there where you can look in the walls and identify if there, uh, if there might be termite damage in there. There's also some, uh, some technology nowadays that can look behind the walls um, without it being destructive. My understanding is that technology still needs to be perfected, at least from inspectors that I've talked to. They don't trust it yet. They've uh, seen instances where it's missed major things. So be careful with that. Talk to your inspector. Talk to a few inspectors, potentially, and see what your options may be if you think you might be buying a house that has some major, major termite damage like that. Here's another thing that I'm, I'm not super concerned about. Um, a broken roof truss. You know, if, if you have an inspector that goes into an attic and they identify, okay, here is a roof truss that is broken, um, but we don't see anything on the outside of the roof. You don't see the roof caving in. You don't see, um, you know, any anything else major happening. There's just a cracked, broken roof truss. Um, I typically uh, am not going to freak out about that. Again, if there's no signs of other things being damaged as a result of this, um, that can oftentimes be a very simple solution. As simple as just sistering another uh, 2x4, whatever the case may be, right onto that truss, and boom, there you have it. Now, you're going to probably need a structural engineer to sign off on that, uh, make sure that everything is, uh, is according to code, and is structurally sound, uh, but that can be a very simple repair in a lot of instances. What I'm more concerned with and what I do freak out about, if you're on the outside of the house and we've talked about this before, is a worn out roof. And by roof, I don't mean, again, I'm changing gears from being inside the attic to now being on the outside of the roof where your shingles are. I am much more concerned about the shingles being worn out and the roof being worn out. For instance, if it's a 20-year roof and we're on year 25, that concerns me a whole lot more than the broken truss. You know why? Because sistering uh, a broken truss in order to make it you know, structurally sound again will probably only cost you, you know, maybe, maybe at the most like 1500 or something like that. Again, it depends on it depends on a lot of different things, but it it's not going to be the cost of replacing a whole roof. The cost of replacing a roof is going to be several thousand dollars. And the bad thing about a worn out roof is that you run into a situation where let's say you have a hailstorm come through. A lot of people get their roofs replaced uh, as a direct result, at least down here, of hail or wind damage. Let's say you have a hailstorm roll through. If your roof is worn out, your insurance carrier might deny it on the basis. They might deny uh, your claim on the basis that the roof has already uh, exceeded its normal lifespan. Yes, it does have some hail damage on here, but the hail damage isn't causing any issues. The roof is already a, a dead roof. Like This should have been replaced forever ago, and even a small hailstorm or a small windstorm would have caused issues. Um, I'm much more concerned about that scenario, the roof being worn out, than I am about, you know, even a minor roof leak. A minor roof leak on an otherwise good roof uh, 
um, can usually be fixed fairly easily. Most roofers will do that, you know, for a few hundred dollars, just a basic roof repair. Uh, but if you've got a roof that is not leaking, but it's well past its lifespan, you have a ticking time bomb that's going to cost you a lot of money, and you're not going to be able to get that replaced uh, by your insurance, most likely. And uh, you might run into an issue with your insurance down the road. They might decide that your roof was uninsurable. So that's something to consider. I've talked about that before in my insurance-related uh, podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to that uh, for more information, please do. Um, air conditioning. Here's one that comes up a lot. So we're going through kind of some of the major things. Your foundation, your roof. How about your AC? Or your heat. Heat is a, a similar type of thing. Um, your AC or your furnace, they're not pumping out cold or hot air. Um, or let's say you go into a house, you turn on the AC, and for some reason, it's not pumping out cold air. I do not immediately get concerned about that. That could be for a whole lot of reasons. And a lot of the possibilities for why that might be happening are not uh, going to necessitate you replacing the entire unit. It may just be a coil, for instance, that needs to be replaced. It's not going to be uh, tons and tons of money, some Freon, you know, thing, things like that that need to be replaced that, yeah, it'll be a few hundred dollars, but it's, we're not talking about necessarily the entire system, again, depending on the situation. When I first see that it's not producing cold air or hot air, um, the next thing that I want to look at is how old is the system. If the system is still within its normal lifespan, it can be fixed. And that's not something that um, I would necessarily be uh, too concerned about, depending on depending on whether the system is running and, and whatever the case may be. There's, a, again, a lot of factors to consider. I'm just talking about my initial reaction. Um, but what I do freak out about when it comes to repairs and when it comes specifically to uh, to issues related to H an HVAC unit, is if it is working, but it's like a 20-year-old unit. And at that point, that's a unit that is well past its lifespan. And again, you're running into a similar situation with the worn-out roof, where it's a ticking time bomb, and that's a big expense. It's gonna be, you know, maybe four or five, six thousand dollars, depending on the size of the unit. And you don't want to have to uh, to have to keep patching it. You know, a lot of people can can do that. They might have a 20-year-old unit and they have patched a gazillion times in one way or another. You know, every time it fails, you know, they do this or that. And those of you who um, have had this type of experience with cars, you know that that is not the way to do things. You know, it's, it's, it's when you get like an old car and everything keeps failing and you keep putting duct tape on the car, so to speak. You keep doing these basic things just to keep it going. Um, at some point, that vehicle needs to be replaced. And at some point, it will completely die out uh, to the point that it no longer makes sense to patch it up. It would cost way too much. You would have too many different things that you would have to patch up, and you just need to replace the vehicle. Same thing with your HVAC unit, with your furnace. At some point, they just reach that age where it no longer can be patched. And you've got a unit that seems like it's working. You know, you get your inspection report and they say everything seems to be good, but it's a 20-year-old unit. I'm worried about that. 
because um, 20 year old units don't normally function very well. So if they are, uh, that's great for the person that uh, is living in the house at that time, but it's a ticking time bomb and it's gonna be a big expense. When it just dies on its own, again, your insurance is not going to be able to warrant that. Now, maybe if you have a home warranty, you might be able to get some help on the home warranty, but a lot of home warranties won't uh, cover the entire cost of the unit. They might cover partial cost of the unit, but not the entire cost. Um, so you need to keep all of that in mind. Um, and last but not least, we're gonna go back to the crawl space. And I, again, uh, there's a little bit of overlap with this in my homeowner's insurance uh, podcast that I did, but standing water in the crawl space after a flood, I am not worried about standing water in a crawl space after a flood, after a flash flood or after several days of rain. Every crawl space has standing water in it in Greenville, South Carolina after a flash flood. We had another one. I mean, we have had so many of these. We had another flash flood just on Friday, I believe it was. Um, I'm recording this podcast on July 28th. Um, it was crazy. I mean, like, I was literally driving through it, and there were, like, for all practical purposes, waterfalls coming out of, uh, you know, different different communities and different shopping centers uh, on the side of the street. I mean, it was like nothing... Uh, that I had ever seen before, because I normally don't drive around in it, but I was I was heading to a meeting, and in just a matter of ten minutes, there was already like six to eight inches in some areas, six to eight inches of rainwater in the streets. And there was I went through one area where the water was already above the sidewalk; you couldn't even see the sidewalk. I mean, it was crazy. You get that? That water has to go somewhere. And you've got a house that's on a crawl space foundation. That water, it has to go in there, and it's it takes a while to dry out. It's not just going to dry out in a day or two. So I'm not freaking out if there is a rare flash flood event and the water, uh, you know, you see standing water in there, even several inches of standing water in there right after the flood, the day after the flood, whatever the case may be. I'm not personally freaking out about that. But let's say that you have several weeks of dry weather, right? And you go in, your inspector goes into that crawl space and he does some moisture readings for the, for the wood. And he comes back and says, you know what? The, uh, the wood in this crawl space is, uh, it has some high moisture levels. I've I read some um, 22% uh, readings. I read some, some 30% readings. Um, which at that point, you know, you've got potential fungal growth. Um, that, at that point, even if there's no standing water in, in the crawl space, I am more concerned about that because that indicates the crawl space is not drying out properly. And I am not happy with a crawl space that's not drying out properly. So, so the real test of the crawl space isn't right after the big flood. It's, it's after several weeks of dry weather. And of course, if you're if you're in a situation where you know it rained a few weeks ago, and uh, you know it, it's it's kind of been wet off and on, and the crawl space is dry, that's even better. Um, but if the crawl space is still has moisture in it, but outside it's been dry for a while, that's a really bad sign, and I'm more concerned about that than I am about the uh, moisture levels and standing water and whatnot after, immediately after a flood. Again, 
There's a lot more to consider when it comes to that. There are a lot of different uh, reasons why there might be high moisture. I'm not getting into all of that. I'm just saying my initial gut reaction because people, here's what happens. When you get an inspection report as a buyer or as a seller, when, when you receive that inspection report from the buyer, it's very easy to have an emotional reaction to it. And more often than not, the emotional reaction is not proportionate to the difficulty level of repairing uh, whatever the item is that needs to be repaired. And so my point is strictly, some of these things we need to tone down the emotion a little bit so that we can think straight because when you're uh, responding emotionally, uh, different things go on in your brain that cause you to not be able to make a good decision. You might find yourself backing out of a contract you shouldn't back out of, or you might find yourself not agreeing to repairs as a seller that you should agree to and that now you're you're again risking your contract that you have on your house you're risking that falling through because you're super concerned about oh man um you know i've got to fix this broken trust in in my uh my attic in yeah in my attic that i never knew about I, i've been living here for years and there's never been a broken tr- i never knew about a broken trust and that sounds like a really expensive repair. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, well, guess what? Uh, if you don't do that, the buyer is probably going to back out and most likely is going to get their earnest money back. So it would make more sense. Don't let the whole deal fall through. I just had one of these earlier this year. I used the broken trust illustration because I literally just had uh, literally just had this happen back in January. Uh, it was flagged by the inspector. The seller's... They didn't know anything about it. They, they built the house. Um, probably that trust broke very shortly after they built it. Uh, it was a 20-year-old house. They never had any issues with the roof. And they were just like, we didn't know anything about this. You know, what is this going to cost? I actually had to get up in that attic. I was scared to death because, I mean, this was a, a big attic, but the trusts were, were low. I had to you know, uh, carefully walk around there. I was scared to death. I was going to find my feet going through their ceiling somewhere. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I had to do that actually for the structural engineer that was involved because structural engineers are so backed up right now that in order to save time to make sure that we could close on time, he had me go up there and snap some photos for him so that he could give a rough idea to the people that were going to repair uh, the contractor that was going to repair the truss, uh, he could basically draw out for them what um, what they needed to do so that when he came out to actually look at it, it would already be done. He wouldn't have to make multiple trips, charge more money, cause more time and more headache and potentially delay the transaction. Um, so that ended up, I, I believe that the trust repair ended up being uh, less than $1,000. It was not that big of a deal and uh it was able to be done in in a few hours and we were able to make it work but you might hear that as a buyer and freak out you might hear that as a seller and freak out um most of the time these things can be solved if you don't have uh construction experience you need to to hold off on the emotional reaction until you actually talk to someone that can give you some firm pricing. You might find that some of these items are not as important as they sound or not as expensive as they sound. 
Well, that's all for today's episode. Again, all my contact information is in the show notes. Hopefully we will have some dry weather here and not more flash flooding because I don't like the flash flooding to uh, cause issues all the time. It's always causing issues, at least here in 2020. We've had so many of them. Tons of issues with our closings. Hopefully that won't happen. We can stay dry. We can close some deals. Looking forward to a good next couple of months. If you need anything, again, reach out to me, text me, call me, email me, and stay safe until next time.